Now, back to Answers for Elders as we honor our military veterans. Carriage is the proud sponsor of our veteran segment, hosted by former Seattle Seahawk, Dennis Boyd. Hi, this is Dennis. We're here with Answers for Elders, and we're again, we're down at Patriots Landing in DuPont, Washington, and here talking to Al Jones. Uh, Al comes to us from the Air Force, and uh, originally from British Columbia, and then uh, from the Royal Air Force, and then eventually into the United States Air Force. Al, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Al, do you mind telling us a little bit about kind of where you started? It says that you learned or had the desire to fly at an early age. Yeah, that's right. Well, when uh, Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic Ocean in 1927, I was about eight years old then. Uh, I was born in 1919. And uh, I I got enthused about airplanes. (laughs) And my mother encouraged me, and uh, she bought me books, and I built model airplanes. And from then on, my goal in life was to be a pilot. So uh, when I graduated from high school in Seattle, Queen Anne High School, in 1938, I enrolled at the University of Washington. But then I thought, really what I want to do is fly airplanes. And so I changed my direction and I enrolled in a class to get a pilot's license at Boyne Field. And uh, that's what got me started. I bought an interest in a Piper Cub. That's a little single-engine airplane, started building my flying time up so that I could qualify for a job with United Airlines. United was the premier airline at that time. And uh, I was in the midst of building up my time to be a candidate at about 150 hours when there was an outfit that came to the Seattle area called the Clayton Knight Committee. And uh, they were looking at airports for young guys like myself, 20 years old. I was 19 then. And uh, had some flying time to go over to England to fly for the Royal Air Force. So I listened and I thought, see, that sounds like a good way to do it. But then I thought, I'm kind of low on flying experience to climb into a Spitfire. So I thought, that's not the right thing to do if I want to live through the war. So he suggested that I go up to Canada and go through their training program, which I did. So I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force with the idea then I'd go over and fly Spitfires. But when I got through with the uh, training up there, which was in 1940, 41, uh, they decided I'd be a good instructor. So they made me an advanced pilot instructor on the uh, Harvard, which is the equivalent of uh, the U.S. Air Force AT-6. And I flew as an instructor for about a year, which was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because by the time I instructed for about a year, I had a pretty good idea how to fly an airplane. And uh, then I went over to England, and uh, that's how I got into the combat area. So how did you go from the the Spitfire to uh, a bomber? Well, I never went to the Spitfire. When I got over to England, they were building up their bomber force, which was by that time... it was 1942, mm-hmm. and uh, they were looking for experienced twin-engine pilots. Well, I had quite a bit of twin-engine time on an Avro Ensign, which was a trainer. And so I was selected to go on a Wellington bomber with a bomber command. And it was kind of an interesting tour. We It started off with, uh, they put a bunch of us in a big hangar, uh, like 20 pilots, 
20 navigators and 20 bombardiers and all the specialty of the airplane. And it was like going to a dancing prom and you picked out your own crew. It was very democratic. And I picked out a navigator because I'd heard he was a, a navigation instructor. And, and I thought, well, he must know something about navigating. And then there was another guy there who was an American. We, all of us Americans wore a patch on our shoulder that, that said USA. And, and I saw that patch and I asked him to be my bombardier, which he said, okay. And then the three of us picked up our our wireless operator and our gunner, tail gunner, and we flew together for 40 missions on the uh, Wellington bomber and had a, they were great guys. We got along very well together. So I thought it was a pretty good way for the British to do it. If you didn't like who you picked out, it was your own fault. <laughs> so tell me, what was the, what was that like on your first mission? Well, my very first mission, I never even got off the ground. I, they they put you in a the, the uh, Wellington didn't have a co-pilot. We flew as a single pilot. <clears throat> they put us in a jump seat next to the, to the pilot where a co-pilot was said. And we I was flew with this Australian, and we were it was dark night and we were running down the runway, and another airplane taxied onto the runway by mistake and we hit him, so we had a crash <laughs> on the first takeoff. That was my my start. <laughs> And I thought, well, this is a good sign. <laughs> Get it over with. <laughs> so uh, the next one I flew on a, what they call it, they were a second dicky ride with a British sergeant pilot. And that was really a, a wild mission. And he was a great pilot. He did a good job. It was, the target was a heavily defended target. And, and uh, he hung on there through all the flak and the searchlights and everything that goes with it. And, I just hung on, and when we got all through, he leaned over to me, and I was sitting there just not doing anything but hoping I could get through it. And he said, hey, Sergio, you were, you were pretty good on that mission. You didn't say a word. Well, I said, I was so damn scared I couldn't talk. <laughs> so, so anyway, we landed back at our base, and from then on, I flew with my own crew, and we flew 40 missions together, and had, managed to have one crash landing. We got shot up over a target and knocked out a fuel tank, so I ran out of fuel. But I landed at night in the forest in, uh, in North Africa. We'd, we were bombing a target in Italy. And uh, I, I knew I was going to run out of fuel, but I didn't want a ditch in the Mediterranean. So we made it to, to uh, North Africa and landed in the forest there. So no landing strip or whatever, you just... No, no, no. The old wheels up, and and the airplane was a total loss, but we didn't have any problem ourselves. Well, it says a little bit for your skills as well as the the airplane and how sturdy it was. And a lot of luck. (laughs) (laughs) So you flew 40 missions for the Royal Air Force and then 48 for the U.S. Air Force. Yes. Well, when we finished our, uh, our tour of operations, we called them OPS whereas the American Air Force called them missions. And uh, my navigator, my bombardier, who was also American, that I mentioned earlier, and I both decided we'd apply for a transfer to the United States Air Force. And uh, they were very willing to transfer us, so we were in Italy at this time. Mm -hmm. So we went in front of a transfer board and took about, well, maybe two months to get all the paperwork done. 
physical and make sure we were who we were. And, and uh, then I transferred into uh, our Air Force, and uh, General Doolittle was in command at that time. He was a lieutenant general. And uh, I was assigned an air headquarters to wait for an assignment to a B-17s because I'd been classified as a bomber pilot. My old commanding officer, who was uh, a group captain, which is like a full colonel, was now on General Doolittle's staff. And when he saw me in American uniform, he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, well, I'm going to do fly on B-17s now. He said, do you really want to do that? Because that was a bad time to go on B-17s. They were losing them like crazy at that time. In fact, there was one raid about that time called the Swineford Raid where they lost 60 airplanes on one raid. So I thought, I didn't really want to do that. But he said, well, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to go on night fighters. I'd like to be a shooter than a shootee. And so he said, well, I'll talk to the general. So he did, and two or three days later, my orders were changed, and I went to night fighters. So it came to me at that time, and it has since that it's knowing the right people at the right time makes a big difference in your life. Yeah. So I've been kind of secretly informed that you are a member of a uh, kind of a quiet elite group called the Quiet Birdman. Oh, that's right. QBs. Okay. QBs. Yeah. Tell me about what what who that group is. And well, and it's it's a secret organization. Very so, secret if they let me know. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a men only deal. It's made up of pilots that are a lot of military, but a lot of commercial airline pilots, and it was started after World War I by pilots that were in the uh, Lafayette Escadrille, that's the French deal. And <clears throat> they started in New York at a, at a tavern there with just a small group, and now it's spread all over the United States. They call them hangers. Were, I belong to the one here in Olympia, although I joined in Wichita. And uh, it's a great group of guys, and we just... Have a good time. Try to do a good scene. Don't have any real good cause. But it's you guys have got a unique bond. Yeah, and, and so that's that. That's very important. Yeah. One last question for you. I also hear there might be a DB Cooper story in your history, or but say that a again. DB Cooper story. Oh yeah. Well, I was somewhat involved on the fringe of uh, the DB Cooper story. Uh, after I left the Air Force, I. I went to work for Boeing as a test pilot, and I was the chief of test pilot at that time. And uh, I had a phone call. I was in my office at about five o'clock. Most everybody had gone home, and the phone rang. I answered, and he said, "This is the FBI calling from Boeing Field." He said, "We've got a guy out here who's going to jump out of a seven two seven, and we need to get some information on speeds." I said, "Well, I'll try to help you. What do you need to know?" He said, "Well, he wants to go out the back door." of the 270, we want to know what kind of speed he should get down to to get that door open. So I said, well, just off the top of my head, I'd say about 140 knots, so the door will open and he can get out. That was my part, small part. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, Al, I want to thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure getting a chance to meet you, being here at Patriots Landing, and meeting some of the unique and absolutely wonderful people here and uh, a chance to for the, hear your stories and a chance to carry them on and so that my generation as well as my kids can learn what it is that the sacrifices that you made so that we can have the life that we have today. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
This is a great place. Okay. Thank you, Al. Okay. This has been a special honoring veterans presentation of Answers for Elders brought to you by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E dot com. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.